Welcome to Berlinale's House of Talents, an intimate exploration of the how and why of movie making, featuring conversations with the leading lights of the film and art worlds. I'm your host, Anna Serene. In this first episode, our journey begins with Brazilian screenwriter, director, critic and festival organizer, Kleber Mendonça Filho, a maker of both documentary and fiction films like Critico, Neighboring Sounds and Aquarius, his films have received international acclaim. His latest work, Bacurau, co-directed and co-written with Giuliano Dornelles, won the 2019 Jury Prize in Cannes. Kleber is a keen teller of stories of resistance and rebellion, and an attentive observer of the workings of a society deeply marked by a history of violence. In this talk, he reflects on the artistic responses to the racial and social tensions and inequalities within Brazilian society. Heavily affected by a troubled and ever-shifting political landscape, filmmakers in Brazil find themselves in a cultural crisis. Yet paradoxically, this is proving to be a prime moment for Brazilian cinema. This conversation between Kleber Mendonça Filho and head of the World Cinema Fund Vincenzo Bugno is placed under the sign of Collectives, a topic explored during the 2020 edition of Berlinale Talents. So without further ado, I leave the floor to Vincenzo and Kleber. First of all, it's, it's a great pleasure for me to be here talking with you. It's a great uh, uh, opportunity. Well, I, I, I run the World Cinema Fund of, uh, of the Berlinale, so-called Berlinale World Cinema Fund, and uh, we support uh, film production in many regions uh, of the world, and uh, definitely uh, Brazil was and still is one of the, uh, uh, belongs to the World Cinema Fund uh, funding regions. I think we have supported already some important uh, um, Brazilian films during the last uh, 15 years, meaning during our life. And for example, last year we supported, uh, I think, a great film, a, f- a first film by a very young uh, female, female filmmaker, Maya Darin, a fiebre. And uh, so Brazil is very important for us, for example, also if you're talking about uh, the political meaning of our job. For example, last year, during the so-called uh, World Cinema Fund Day, we had the biggest part of the event focused on Brazilian cinema, particularly uh, um, on Brazilian cinema during or at the beginning of the Bolsonaro time, which is, as, as everybody knows, a pretty challenging element for uh, for Brazilian filmmakers and and um, uh, producers. It also changed a little bit this fact. Uh, I think also the, the crisis, um, the situation of our relationship with with, with Brazil. Because uh, I don't know, at the beginning of our life, we got some Brazilian uh, projects. And then, suddenly, during the last two, three years, we could uh, say that um, Brazil is probably, um, I wouldn't say maybe the the submitting country number one, but more or less uh, like like this. And, um, well, I think uh, um, we should also talk about this, but we are going to talk more about cinema. I have a first question, because I attended the press conference of the jury, as everybody knows, Kleber uh, Mendonça Filho is a member of the jury of the international competition. And uh, you started saying, we have such a complicated situation, but it's really a pity 
because this is the best time of Brazilian cinema. So what do you mean exactly? Well, good afternoon to everyone. I'd like to thank uh, the Berlinale Italians for uh, the invitation to be here, which is a pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, in the conference, I said that this is probably one of the best moments in Brazilian cinema history. Of course, historically, we had the, the Cinema Novo in the 60s, which um, was and still is uh, extremely relevant in terms of trying to understand where Brazilian cinema can go and what it can do uh, with and around Brazil. But now um, we have something which is very diverse going on and which is the result of 15 or 20 years of very, in my mind and in the minds of many, uh, very intelligent use of public policies which were built democratically with a lot of dialogue between producers and filmmakers and, and policymakers um, who thought that culture was strategic to Brazil, and, um, and this has generated a number of very interesting films which come from all over the country, not only from the southeastern region, which is where historically all the money was um, concentrated um, over decades. And, and today I come from the northeast, uh, and I was able through these um, public policies to do my first feature, Neighboring Sounds, and then I did Aquarius and Bacurau, and, and so many men and women, young and older, they are making films, and the films have become prestigious. So this is why I believe uh, this is a very strong, probably the strongest moment in terms of production and respect for Brazilian cinema. I think what is also very important, if you talk in terms of uh, collectives and, and communities, that um, so I have been observing the, the Brazilian production landscape for many years now, and what is really interesting to me, or what it was very interesting to me, is a kind of federalization of the production, meaning that there are very interesting directors from production company, more or less everywhere in, throughout the country, because it's not only about... Uh, uh, Rio, Sao Paulo, it's about uh, Porto Alegre, it's about Manaus, it's about Recife, and I think it's a very important uh, element, and I hope that it's going to stay like that. Uh, well, when you put it like that, uh, I have to agree, yes, this is exactly what it is, but right at this moment, we see how important that was, because now we are all witnessing the small production companies, they're all closing all around the country. And technicians and art directors and, uh, you know, gaffers and electricians, they're all basically out of work because the projects have been frozen bureaucratically. So the, the destruction of what we had as an industry uh, now has some real effects, and there is a general sense of depression going on uh, in a film scene which was very busy, or had been very busy up until now. And what's happening also is that a lot of the decisions are going back to the southeast politically, 
which means that the big productions, they come out of the Southeast, like Netflix and Amazon. So everybody's trying to get a piece of the big Amazon and Netflix series, and it's just, uh, it's just a terrible uh, development. Nothing against Amazon or Netflix, but now they're the only sources of income for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really fucked up situation. Um, so you have uh, shot and produced uh, three long feature films during this decade, which has been uh, the last decade, which has been extremely important for the Brazilian history. And I would like to uh, contextualize, after these 10 years, the different uh, uh, meaning of these films. Because, uh, for example, uh, uh, the first film, uh, Osom or Reodor, has been shot, produced during the Lula time. Yes. Uh, the second one uh, during the Dilma time, and I can remember very well the, the episode in, in Cannes, and the first time, the last time, Bacarao at the beginning of the Bolsonaro time. So could you recognize something or a parallelism to, to this film, to different eras? That's a very interesting uh, point that you're raising, because during the early interviews in the Cannes Film Festival for Bacarao, because some of the journalists, as much as they loved the film, but they were like, really? Did you, did you go like, uh, you're making like a crazy fucked up film like that? Because Aquarius was kind of quieter. And, and uh, I, I realized something that is very interesting. When I made Usan uh, Hedar, it was the Lula years. There was some kind of stability, which was actually... Quite, I had never witnessed or experienced that kind of um, stability in Brazilian society. Those were good times. It doesn't mean that everything was all right, because not, uh, never, things are never all right in any society. So Usson Hedor came out of my own observations about a society which was, has always been very tense, because the conflicts, they always exist, you know, racial, social, different layers of society. So the film is really an observation on life in Brazilian society. So it's kind of ethereal in a way. It's kind of diffuse the tension in the film. When, when I went for Aquarius, it was the... Um, I wrote it in 2013 and 2014. We shot it in 2015. And after Dilma Rousseff's second re-election uh, re in, in 2014, we began to get uh, uh, the kind of energy that had been absent from the country for the last maybe 10 years. And we began to hear things that, were not being, that had, had not been said for many years. The misogyny came explicit in a very explicit manner in, on the internet and even in the press. Um, it's like the right wing came out of, came out of the, the holes, you know, the gutter, and, and they began to express themselves in ways that they would only do secretly or in, in, in uh, talking to friends. So I found myself writing dialogue for Aquarius, which I would never have written for Usson Hedor because things were becoming a little more, uh, the tone went up. 
meanwhile, we were already working on Bacurau, and then Aquarius happened, and a lot of, uh, basically, Brazil left the democratic road in 2016 with the, the coup d'etat, which many people call uh, impeachment. And, uh, and then things just got more and more serious, uh, and we were working on Bacurau. Donald Trump was elected. Brazil went a little crazier. And we found ourselves raising the volume from Aquarius to Bacurau. And it, we had a good excuse also because it was a genre film. So you can just uh, go a little insane. And to our surprise, when the film opened in last year, it seemed to have the right tone for the madness that Brazil is undergoing now. And it, the film was, had quite an impact in, in Brazil. Um, so I, I have rewatched your film during the last days, and it has been a very intensive experience, and maybe due to the fact that I watched more or less this film, not at the same time, but mm -hmm. somehow, I have the impression that now I'm, I have a kind of dialogue with these films, and I have tried to automatically somehow to develop some lines, uh, 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 if you talk about content and also artistic profile. But uh, one of the first lines for me on uh, what is very important, it's very, I think it's not so difficult to understand it, you have shot the first two films in the city, and the, the third one is in a rural area. Yeah. So I think it's a very important big difference if you talk about focusing on different topics. Uh, the, the village is a kind of a um, separate universe. It's a very particular place. Uh, it's uh, somehow, I feel a taste of utopia because there are definitely conflicts between the, 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 the villagers, but somehow it works. It's also a lot about solidarity. Um, Bacarao is a place which is at the same time a community, a militant collective, because they are fighters. And there is a community with a psychedelic touch. Maybe you can explain something about it. But uh, do you feel a, a kind of nostalgia for a, kind, for a place like this, which is a pre-urban, pre pre-industrial society with a very particular profile? I mean, well, I, I, I come from the northeast of Brazil. I come from a big city, uh, Recife. But coming from Recife and from the Northeast puts you in a kind of a particular state of mind when you think about the region. And I grew up with many people, friends, and even family, who have come from the Sertão, from 300, 400 uh, um, kilometers away. Uh, Winston, for example, our friend, he's, he's, he comes from the Sertão. So in a certain way, Even if I do not come from the Sertão, I have a lot of what it means in me through food and music and poetry and books and the way people speak and the accents and the words, and, uh, which you can actually... Some of the words in, in that piece of music uh, are an interesting example when, if you understand Portuguese. and I think the translation is actually interesting. Um, so... To answer your question, the little communities in the Sertão, they are quite, um, 
they are quite close, I think, to the general idea of what Bakurao is. Now, we made some special modifications for the film, but the general idea is very close to what you see in the film, to the feeling of what you see in the film. Um, usually, Brazilian television and even cinema has portrayed these little communities as full of simple people. And this is something that we always hated. Uh, me and Juliana, we discussed this a lot because they are not simple at all. I don't know what, what that even means. Uh, and, and, and this is a, a figure of language which comes out a lot on, on Brazilian television. So-and-so is a simple person, you know, by meaning uh, simple, uh, simple as in not educated, which is a complete, uh, I mean, it's a complete lack of understanding of how people work. So um, a lot of what we did, um, a lot of what we wrote came from our own feelings towards the Sertão. And then when we did for, uh, location scouting, we drove more than 10,000 kilometers looking for places to shoot the film. A lot of what we wrote was, uh, was confirmed by these trips. Uh, there was one instance we got out of the car in a very small village, and this old lady, 80 years old, she came up and said, uh, are you here to visit our museum? And which is a scene in the film. And we said, no, but we'd like to see the museum. So she takes us to her house. She opens the door. On her very small living room, one wall in the living room was the museum of the little community. But it was beautiful. It wasn't kitsch. It wasn't ridiculous. It was beautiful. It had little objects. It had photographs and bits of newspaper. And, and, and that's true. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real story. So the feeling of these communities... I don't think it's a utopia at all. I mean, they, they do exist and they have their own understanding of their history. And this is exactly what we were uh, after when we decided to develop this film. And one thing we did not want to do was to develop some, some fictitious uh, vertical kind of approach to, uh, to a region I do not technically come from. So we had to respect the way these regions and, and these people work. And, and the experience we had making the film was one of the most beautiful things that ever happened in our lives. Um, I, I think the, 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 the part, the element of the museum is crucial for the film if you consider the other films, because basically you're dealing with memory and this kind of museum is extremely in, in important. Um, in your film, uh, you have more focused, you have focused on your hometown, which is uh, Recife, intensively dealing, I think, with the history of, of, of the city, so with the development, with the contemporary architecture, but in a very uh, particular way. So let's talk about this kind of uh, archaeological, anthropological uh, attitude. And also about the identity was Recife. What is Recife? Why is Recife such a particular place? Sometimes I think that wherever you come from uh, and whatever nationality uh, you are, you will find ways of portraying it in, 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 in an interesting, passionate way. 
his, I, I actually believe his Sif is a special city because of its history and its culture. But so many films have been made out of so many places, which would not originally be seen as interesting, you know. There are many interesting films throughout the history of cinema and literature also. But Hisif is, is where I was born and where I grew up and, and, uh, and that's where I live. And, and I see a lot of tension in the city and I see a lot of destruction and at the same time a lot of tradition, which is good and bad. I see a history built on sugarcane as a monoculture. That's the only thing... Uh, the state produced for almost 400 years, which is bad, and which influences the way things work culturally and historically in the city. So a lot of that ended up in, in my films, and, and, um, and it's just, it was, it was natural to make films in Hesifian, and I might make more films in the city where I come from. You know? It doesn't mean that I, can, I can't make a film in Sao Paulo, why not? But or, I don't know, Bordeaux in France. Why not? But I've been making films in Hissif, and Bacurau is, is the first uh, exception. Bordeaux is a good idea. Probably the sensei would be happy about this mm. if you shoot a film in France. Yes. I don't know. Mm. Um, for me, uh, I mean, your cinema... I mean, Brazil is a kind of open museum of colonialism. So you can see everything. It's maybe, there are also other places. But the social differences and the archaeology of the cities, the, everything is so in front of your eyes. And uh, your cinema basically is also dealing a lot with uh, social classes. I would say it's one of the most important focus, if you can say that. And uh, it's also dealing uh, uh, with uh, the relation between uh, uh, social, social classes and uh, um, urban space, which is very important for me, and the development of the city or the development of the beach. So um, it seems like an innocent walk on, on, on the beach, on the praia, good, good feelings, everything, sunshine, but it's definitely more than this. It's a very complex part of, of the film because this, this clip connects us with the present, with the social present, and reconnect us with, with uh, uh, the history. So it's about uh, uh, the division of the city as a mirror of the past and of the present. Do, do you agree? Yeah, each city has its own um, modus operandi, which is developed by history, by society, and by people. Of course, I, I'm completely fascinated by Berlin as a city because of so much history that it has been compacted in, in this place. I'm always fascinated to walk over the marking on the sidewalk, which says uh, Berlin Wall. Um, and each city has its own scars. And some of the scars, they're visible, and others you have to maybe dig a hole or scratch the painting on the wall to see some historical... Um, explanation as to why we are who we are today and why we act the way we act. Uh, the explanation about the sewage pipe on the beach is real. I mean, this is... I grew up going to that beach and uh, it was very clear. Uh, 
it was very clear in, in a way that is extremely painful. Why was it clear? Because before the pipe, the beachgoers were white. And after the pipe, the beachgoers were darker and black. You could see it. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a design piece. And this is the society I come from. We are in the 21st century and there are still incidents of bourgeois buildings which have a social elevator and a service elevator. And uh, somebody who lives in the building, white, sometimes tells very politely the black person who works in the building to say something like, uh, the service elevator is fully functioning. You can take it. And this still happens today. We had slavery up until the 1888. Slavery is still uh, is almost like an amputated limb, which is not there anymore, but you can still feel it. And, and this is what it is. I mean, uh, right at the end of the scene, two bourgeois friends, they have two assistants who are sisters. So it's like they, they work for the, they have the same family working for them. Um, and this is a story that keeps, in Ousson Hedor, there is also a, the mother retires and then her, her, her daughter, she takes over the, you know, the, the domestic services in there. So the, all of these things, they are uh, archaeology and they are also trying to understand, observe how society works. Uh, so your, your cinema is about memory and about history, but you, as you are saying now, it's about a lot about of the color of the skin and about slavery. It's about the archaeology of slavery. And... Um, I think this this clip is very important because so the Sonia Braga is, is visiting her maid yes. together. So and the, between there is the border because the maids they live in another place of the city, but your film focuses a lot between the relation uh, on the relation between masters and maid. Yes. And I think this is uh, extremely important. Uh, also, if you talk about the incredible ambiguity of this uh, relation. If I remember uh, well, uh, you also analyzed your own position and attitude and feeling about this situation, which is also very ambivalent, yeah. because as, as a white Brazilian, uh, uh, you are involved in this uh, uh, structure. For example, there is a scene also in your first film, which is, um, we are not going to show in it because we cannot show everything, but um, the apartment with the main character, uh, white guy, and the, the maid with, is, uh, with her kids. Yes. And the kids, uh, they, don't, they are barefoot, and they work in, in the city, and this is a border that you cannot cross because it's really about the body. So you can maybe somehow democratize, uh, kind of being together in a very polite uh, way, but it's, if it's about the body and uh, the color and your, of your skin and your, your own apartment, it doesn't work. So do you agree? Yes, it's extremely uh, uh, disturbing to discuss that and to show that. In fact, there is a scene where he comes back he was unexpected to arrive at that time, 
And when he opens the door of the apartment, uh, the maid's uh, son is sleeping on the couch. So he immediately gets up, very uncomfortably, a, a little awkwardly, and he immediately moves geographically from the living room to the service area, which is where society says that he should be. Of course he, should, he could be in the living room. And João would not even enforce the law of him being in a service area. But there is something very uncomfortable which the film does not explain. But we, we, we made sure we got the, the physical body language just right. Because um, there is movement in the living room and he moves from the living room to the kitchen and to the service area. And João moves from the living room to his bedroom inside. And then he comes back to the service area. So all these little signs, they, they come from the way society has been established. I'm just observing this, but it is painful because it has happened as me growing up in my house. And we were not, I don't think we were the, <laughs> the classic uh, stereotypical aristocratic family. We, we are not even aristocratic or rich, but all these elements, they are present. And they are very disturbing when you put them in a film or in a book. We started talking about uh, uh, your cinema as a kind of um, archaeologic attitude to shoot cinema. I think this is also very important because uh, Brazil is about forgetting yes. or denied uh, 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 the past. And it's about denying uh, power structure. It's about the history and the archaeology of cinema. So we started talking about cinema as a place at the beginning, about white race and uh, uh, class belonging. So what do you think? Well, the first thing I'd like to point out is that when I started writing the script for Neighboring Sounds, I had this idea that the, uh, the, the, the film takes place in a normal um, modern urban street in the in the southern in southern Recife on the coast, which is where exactly where I used to live and where I, I lived until two years ago, and um, and I decided that everything that was going to happen in the film and the street would be designed as a sugarcane plantation which in my mind is what defines a lot of the professional and social problems and relationship problems we have in, in, in Recife, Pernambuco. Because I used to work in a company, a local company, that I felt that me as, a, 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 as one of the employees was being treated as a sugarcane uh, worker, which is a, a, a classic way of describing the roughness of the approach to, one's, to how one treats the other. So I, I wrote the script for Neighboring Sounds, and I, I would never say that in the film, but in my mind, the street would function as a sugarcane plantation. But after about 60 pages, only doing scenes on the street, I suddenly felt that the, the film needed a break, and then finally I found a way of going, spending some weekend uh, in the script, 
and taking the characters to the family's sugarcane plantation, which, without any explanation, verbal explanation, just showing images, now you, <laughs> you understand where all the, all the problems come from. I think a lot of people made that association. For other people, they just do not, they have no idea what they're looking at when they see the film. I don't understand that sequence. I don't know why it's in the movie. It's boring, it's slow, and then the guy gets blood in his head. And I said, I'm, I'm, well, I, I tried my best, I'm sorry. Uh, you can't really please everyone. But uh, that sequence also shows that the sugarcane plantation was a full community. It had a post office, a school, a cinema, it, and it's completely decadent, and most of them have closed. So I also found a way of showing a movie theater, which is uh, something that I always find a way of using in my films, except Bakurao. And, um, and it basically is about the past and how the past was built with money, and now the money is gone, and it's just decadence. And I see a lot of uh, decadence in the state of Pernambuco, you know, historically speaking. Uh, what is particularly lacking in, in this sequence is the part of the shower under the waterfall, and I would really like to talk about the construction of the city, because we have, if you remember well, on the left side, the, the young guy, so the... And then we have in the middle the, the grandfather, who is a kind of Senor Odos Engeos, so a landowner. Senor in, in, in the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have uh, on, on, on the right side the, the, the young girl. And for me, this scene is really about trying to perpetuate uh, uh, social classes. It's, about, it's, it's, it's very interesting to observe the guy because this guy is really trying to involve these people and trying to communicate that they belong to a special class. And what is extremely important to me is also the fact that uh, it was not included in the scene, but before the scene, they had lunch together. And, and the old guy started saying, you should marry. And this you should marry is not related to... So it's not about a romantic vision, but it's about race. You should marry in order to preserve this class and having kids. And I think it's uh, extremely important. Yeah. yeah, I think you got it. It's, uh, it's all about class and race and, and the color of the skin. Um, there is a Brazilian film I cannot discuss, which is in competition, which is also about many of these things. It's, uh, it's a great theme in Brazilian cinema and Brazilian literature. And I find it amazing uh, when Brazilian films or books completely, they manage, through a lot of work, I imagine, to avoid completely these themes because they are just, they are, they are part of our lives. Um, I would like to talk about uh, editing in your cinema. Uh, like it was an interesting example, but there are so many other editing structures which are very um, uh, appealing to me. 
uh, I think you have a kind of a um, psychoanalytic uh, approach, or what is also very important to me is the relation between editing and sexuality. So in, in, in different films, because you have sometimes uh, some characters uh, being, I don't know where, in a bar, in a cafe, or attending a party, then you see this character, and then a kind of sexual relation scene set um, 30 years ago, something like that. I think it's very important because you're dealing in a very deep way with our daily reality. So we are not always here. We are always reeling with our phantoms and dreams. Mm. And editing is a kind of wonderful way to deal with this. Yeah, but cinema has been doing this for quite a while and it's beautiful when it's well done. Um, I really love the idea of of making a film, and the film is called Aquarius, and the film is about memory, and tactile memory also, not only uh, what, what you remember, but also what you can touch. Um, so the film begins in 1980, and then we fast forward to 2015. But in 1980, we go back to maybe 1950 or 1948, in a 70-year-old in a woman's memories. So the timeline for the film now is expanded from 1950 to 2015 with one stop in 1980. I really like that, uh, that range that the, the story could give me. And um, she's, she's in her birthday celebration. The kids are reading a, an homage that was written to her. And her mind uh, wonders when she looks at a wooden chest, which is a piece of furniture. And that piece of furniture reminds her of something, which is a very good uh, sexual memory that she had with a man. And uh, she's completely out of the homage, and she's thinking about sex. But it's, it's very, um, it's very, there are very brief editing moments. But they were almost enough to get the film an 18 certificate in Brazil, which we did not get in the end. But it's funny how um, not even three seconds of sexuality can get you a, an 18. It, it's crazy, isn't it? You, you can explode ahead and everything is fine, but if you show uh, sexuality in, in a non... Um, in a non, in a way that the the market has decided that is not usual, you will be fined, like, you know, for speeding when you're driving a car by the police. Just a little bit more talking about editing. So um, I think editing is the soul of cinema. It's an incredible, creative, uh, wonderful process. Um, do you work always with the same editors, or do you feel, do you believe you are a kind of collective, you and your editor? So it's really a community and working together. Making films is a huge collective. Um, you really have to find the best. You you really have to work with people you love or like and admire. Uh, I have edited. I edited Bacurau. Bacurau was also directed by Juliano Dornelis a good friend. But I did Bacurau and Aquarius with Edu, Eduardo Serrano, who's a wonderful, he's a good friend and he's a great collaborator. And it is a collective. We edited Bacurau for 10 months. 
Uh, we saw uh, Aquarius, we edited for six months and three weeks. And we saw Hador was a completely different process. I, I started with an editor and ended up editing alone. And I, I worked for a year and three months. It was too long. But that's what I really needed to make the film work. I spent six months thinking that there would be no film until I finally clicked and I, I found how it could work. And what about sound editing? It's also very fascinating, your film, uh, because you can tell a lot with sounds. Yeah. So you have a, a soundtrack, but at the same time you can hear some other elements, mm -hmm. so sound elements. This is very fascinating to me. This is uh, always there are many other directors who deal with uh, telling sound, telling stories with sound, but it's a very precise uh, uh, moment or precise strategy in your, in your work. Mm, sound, I mean, I, I really believe that if, I, I always say this, um, if the film ever played on the radio, it should sound interesting as a, as a film playing on the radio, you know. It should have interesting sounds for you to listen to and mysterious sounds. And sometimes the sound for something very trivial doesn't have to be uh, the trivial sound for something which is visually trivial, like a, a door closing. You could maybe put something else in there and... Uh, And of course, um, we can do a lot with sound these days. Um, neighboring sounds, I edited a lot of the sound myself. Aquarius, I, I was part of the sound design, and I, I always have these ideas that have to do with sound. But in Bacoral, there was an interesting situation, because the opening of the film, it begins with a very, ex very expensive uh, CGI effect of uh, the stars, it's a little uh, like um, kind of a Hollywood image of the universe and then you have planet Earth. And, and originally we wanted uh, John Carpenter's night track opening the film. But when we, we put it against the, those images, it looked just like an American film. Because the CGI was quite well done and, and the sound was very industrial from John Carpenter. So I suggested that we use Caetano Veloso's No Identificado, sung by Gal Costa. And now the tension between the image and the sound made, made it work. And then the John Carpenter track went to the Capoeira sequence. Because when you see people in the Capoeira, the last thing you expect is to hear John Carpenter. So the tension between the image and the sound is often what, I, what I'm always uh, thinking about when I make films. I'm happy you are talking about the Capoeira scene because I was, I was starting editing uh, uh, this scene because you have the soundtrack, you have the sound in the Capoeira, which is completely different. Yes. And then I said to myself, no, then it's too much. We cannot watch or, or we cannot screen or your films. But it's, uh, for me, it's very, a very important uh, example of this um, way of, of working with sound. Uh, we have now another, another clip from your first film. For copyright reasons, all film clips have been removed from this recording. Uh, 
Now, this is a, this is a very uh, disturbing scene because it comes from many disturbing um, places. Uh, I don't think I ever... I don't think I ever discussed this publicly, but in 1987, I went to a school, and just outside the school, uh, there were all the, you know, the bigger, the bigger 18, 19, 17-year-old, uh, white, rich kids, and, and um, a very small uh, street kid, black, he tried to steal the the watch of a, of a girl. And he was caught by the, the bigger, rich kids, the white kids, the same kind of kids that I studied with. And I saw when they began to hit this little boy, and they broke his nose, and he ran away screaming and, and crying. So that's one thing. The other thing is, in, uh, 15 years ago, we had something very unusual, which became almost like an urban legend, called the Spider Boy. Spider Boy was also a black boy who had an amazing and very strange talent of climbing um, um, tall residential buildings, which are the bourgeois buildings, exactly in the region where I used to live and where I shot uh, neighboring sounds. And he had a very strange talent because he was very good at it. And, and, and the buildings were definitely not made to be climbed. It was a very dangerous thing to do. But the strange thing is, sometimes he would enter the, uh, the flats, the apartments, through the terrace. Sometimes he would use the, the cell phone company cables installed at the back of the buildings. He would go into the kitchens and eat a lot, and he would often even fall asleep on the couch. And the next, in the next morning, people would wake up, they would, they would have a, find a, a 13, 14-year-old black boy sleeping on the couch. Sometimes they would open the door and send him away, sometimes they would call the police. And then he was arrested many, many times, and he went to uh, institutions where he would always run away, and he would always end up in some building again. And then one night, we just learned that he was killed by someone who shot him 13 times. 13 times, yeah. He was executed as a, now a 16 or 17-year-old boy. On top of all that, which is all reality, uh, we can think about the Sassi Perere story, which is, um, I mean, it comes from the mix of African uh, stories and folklore, uh, which is a magical black boy with a pipe and with a strange uh, kind of um, red, uh, not a hat, but a kind of... Um, Hood, yeah. And he has only one leg, and he hops almost like a kangaroo. So this is part of Brazilian folklore. So all of that, in a very strange way, ended up in Usson Redor, in the figure of this boy. 
And uh, I don't think I ever gave a, a more technical explanation to a character who came very naturally and organically into the script. Twelve years later, I can tell you all of this, but I would never have been able to tell you that when I was writing the script. Why is this boy here? I don't know. I just find him interesting. I think it's probably the spider boy. So I had more or less the same feeling because I say myself, this, this boy, maybe it's real, maybe it's not real, maybe it's a dream, maybe not. It's for me, it was a kind of vision which is definitely related with the history of, of, of the country. So the, this boy, for me, maybe it sounds a little bit strange, but if this boy is the history of slavery. So uh, you cannot forget it, and slavery, as you said at the beginning, still exists. This boy, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm not really into uh, establishing a final word on this boy is the history of slavery, but when you say it, it makes complete sense to hear that. But I don't think I could say to all of us here, this boy is the image of slavery. But I'm sure he is. Is it clear? <laughs> um, I think it's a good introduction to my <clears throat> next uh, question or my next block of meanings. <clears throat> uh, because uh, your film deals also with rebellion. So in all your films there is an important rebellion topic or some characters, we are re rebellious. For example, uh, in Aquarius, uh, the, the main character is a wonderful subversive character, so on different layers. And for example, in another film, we see a maid having sex in the bed of the master, which is a wonderful rebellion. So it's about space. Our super white bed. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> super white bed. And then, uh, uh, but maybe the most uh, clear one, so obviously in, in Baccarao, we have, you're dealing with the history of rebellion in Brazil, because uh, Lunga, so the, the guy, the, the warrior, is a kind of cangaceiro uh, uh, of our days. I mean, in the film, we see also the heads of the cangaceiro. We see the photos, and somehow I think... I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. There is a relation between this character and the Kangasero of the past, also considering that we are dealing with the rebellious cultural heritage of your region. Well, yes, I mean, it's undeniable that we played with the iconography of, of the Kangaseros from, from the 1930s in the Northeast. And, and to this day, they capture the imagination of many, many people, including myself and Giuliano, who wrote the film together. But it's always important to point out that, yes, uh, it was a time when, when uh, people got beheaded. In fact, the cangaceros were themselves beheaded by the police when they were caught. But it's very important to remember that every six months, four months, every eight months in Brazil, there is a prison rebellion. And the prison rebellions in Brazil, they are medieval. Uh, there are different, different groups of inmates fighting, and then they kill each other. And when they kill each other, they decapitate people. And then they throw over the wall onto the street, heads, arms, and legs. And that's on the internet. I've, I don't see those kinds of videos, but 
uh, they, are, they are on the internet. There are images of inmates playing football with uh, a, a colleague's head. So it's interesting how the past sometimes puts a sheath of protection on, on many people because audiences and film critics, they always go for, and, and yourself, and I'm not blaming you, I'm just pointing this out, they always go straight to the 1930s and say, yes, the Cangaceros, yeah, it, it's correct, Cangaceros, we are very clear about the jewels and the... But right now, Brazil is a place where in prison rebellions, they have decapitations and dismemberments. It, it's happening now. And in my mind, this is not in the film, I discussed this with Julian Lunga, probably spent some time in an institution and that's probably where he got really wild, because he goes really over the top towards the end of the film. He goes crazy, like a punk cangaceiro from, uh, from a horror film, which is what we wanted. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I agree about uh, the maid wanting to have sex in the super white bed. That's a sign of rebellion. The security guy is also another sign of rebellion, which comes from under the understanding of history. And the complete lack of understanding of history by the, by the powerful old man, which is a very Brazilian thing. Um, and of course, Aquarius. Aquarius is an interesting one because it's a woman who says no to uh, men. And they don't understand the no. So they keep going, they keep going, they keep going, until she has to do something. Bakurao, I'm not sure it's a rebellion. I think it's a reaction based on a history of violence. A very, it's like uh, someone who's very peaceful, but who has a, a, a black belt in karate. A very peaceful person who will talk to his enemy for one hour saying, let's not do this. I like you. Let's not do this. And then after one hour, he just fucking kills the other guy. <laughs> I think that's Bacurau, you know. Um, I would like to come back to the situation of the Brazilian filmmakers in, in, in these days. So uh, what about solidarity? So do you feel a part, as a part of the a collective against uh, the government? So do you feel a kind of militancy, solidarity? Or what about the situation these days? Well, I, I come from a, a film scene in Pernambuco, which is very peculiar. Uh, when we make a film like Bacurau, we... We, we end up hiring people from all over the country because it's a, quite a big film for, for my standards anyway. So we have all the local collaborators and very good friends. And then we get all the people who came from Rio and Sao Paulo and other cities as technicians and, uh, to work on the film. And we always get this reaction from the outsiders saying... You, you have a very peculiar way of working here. And they say it with, mostly with admiration, sometimes with uh, dismay, 
because uh, sometimes the technicians are uh, unionized, so they become a little a little tougher to deal with. But in Hisifi, there is always a strong sense of community and a strong sense of collaboration in making films. I don't think that's going to change. It's probably going to get closer and, and more... Uh, I think we're going to cooperate even more, I imagine, but we have always cooperated with, uh, with each other. You know? um, and like in... I mean, I'm sure Berlin has the same thing in its film scene. There are the, there are the little groups of... You know, but I, I don't know those people or I don't get along with that one, but this is my group, this is the one I like, this is the sound designer that I like, this is the editor that I like, and, uh, and we are friends, and, and, and that's how cinema works. I, I really believe that making films is, is about trusting. I mean, making films is tough enough, so you don't have to add other layers of tension by working with the, the wrong people. You know, but the wrong people for me can be the right person for somebody else. You know? It's just like in friendship and love relationships. You know? um, I would like to talk about um, another collective, also considering that you are a film critic and a festival director. So your, your festival is Janela yeah. Recife. I would like to talk about an important collective, which is the, the, the audience in the cinema. <laughs> So I think uh, uh, it would be very important to talk about uh, cinema as, as a film, but also as a cinema as a place. And considering that you are also a festival director, I think, uh, I don't know, what about defending cinema as a place of, uh, as a place of being together, sharing a film experience, being a part of the city? I'm completely... I've been doing this for many years. Uh, this is something that I truly believe in, I'm completely passionate about this idea and luckily there are many people in many countries and in Brazil who, who think the same and, and who cherish and, and work with the, the film going experience um, it's nice it's interesting to hear the word Janelle here because we are in Berlin watching films, of course I'm in with the competition but yesterday I managed to uh, escape to see a film at Forum Expanded in the And for me, that I can already see it being projected in, in our wonderful 1,000-seat uh, 1952 movie palace, which is in downtown Recife, an amazing place, which has really shaped uh, 70 years of cinephilia in, in Recife. It's a very special place. We're very lucky to have that, that cinema. And I think it's, it's a great example of how architecture, history... Uh, personal lives of so many people and the, and the history of cinema, they come together to, to, to give you a, a very strange feeling. I mean, once you go in, uh, it's already special. And then the films, they interact with the place. And yeah, it's, um, it's something that is much discussed now with everything that's been happening to the industry, with streaming, with the way Netflix has come into our lives, but um, I, I just read the Nostradamus report from Rotterdam, you really know that report? And they said that in the next five years, as streaming is going to go down, 
and the film-going experience will go up. So I love to read about that. I agree with them. I'm happy that Nostradamus is supporting us. <laughs> so we have a last clip, which is just a kind of homage to the memory and to the past of, of the country. So the last one. For copyright reasons, all film clips have been removed from this recording. The idea was more about the photos as a final special effect, but it works. <laughs> I'm sorry? The idea was to show more the photos because mm -hmm. it's more related to memory, but it's at the same time a very important part of the film, also considering the ur urban uh, uh, structure. Yeah, of I mean, there are no coincidences really in life if you think about them. Um, sometimes we are so impressed by a coincidence, but if you try to analyze it, there are no coincidences. Uh, the photographs were found at the same history department which my mother funded at, in, a, in, a, in, a federal, in a in a foundation which is connected to the Ministry of Education. Uh, she founded it in the late 70s and uh, that's where I found all those pictures. Not a coincidence that I spent I grew up listening to stories about how, how society works and how, fuck, uh, how, how fucked up it is because of how history plays with different elements of society and that's how I, I was led to make these films. Um, so the photographs, they, they are all about the state of Pernambuco. They were taken no more than 60 kilometers away from Recife in the 60s and in the 50s. And uh, yeah, they are a very brief explanation of why the state is the way it is. Um, it features many fences, which is a recurring theme in the film. There are probably six scenes in very discreetly, with the very discreet elements of fences and gates in the film. And one of the memorable um, pieces of dialogue towards the end of the film is it, it was over a fence you killed our father because of a fence so that the very first photograph in the montage is a fence and, and, and then you see more fences and then there are scenes with fences in the middle of the film um, and uh, the other thing I, I did not mention when I was talking about Spider Boy Spider-Boy broke something very, something which is sacred in Brazilian bourgeoisie, which is security by gravity. So the, the higher you live, the safer you are, because of course, who's gonna, nobody's gonna come in through the window, right? So he was a major threat to the notion of feeling safe. And I imagine this is why he, was, he had to be um, taken out in the most violent and exemplary fashion. This also explains the messages written on the street, like, happy birthday, blah, 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 I love you, so-and-so. And because people have a vertical life, you know, they wake up in the morning and they, they see there is a message. Sometimes it's also, uh, you owe me money, pay now. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much, Kleber, and thank you very much to everybody for attending thank this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You are great. This was the first episode of Berlinale's House of Talents. If you enjoyed it, please share the podcast and subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest episodes. To find out more about the program of Berlinale Talents and its international initiatives, if you want to apply for upcoming editions or dive headlong into our virtual archive of talks, go to berlinale-talents.de. This podcast is brought to you in cooperation with Goethe Institute. It is produced by 4000 Hertz, our editor is Vincent Forster, music by Rutger Reiners, project coordination Rabea Bockholt, project management Christina Thurstrom and Florian Weghorn. I'm Anna Serene and this was Berlinale's House of Talents. Thank you for listening. Until next time.